Welcome to the BMJ podcast. I'm Fee Godley, Editor-in-Chief of the BMJ. Chris Whitty will need no introduction to our UK audience. He's England's Chief Medical Officer, Chief Medical Advisor to the UK Government, and has played a vital role in shaping the UK's response to COVID-19. Chris is a clinician and an infectious disease epidemiologist with a long record of working with viral diseases such as HIV and Ebola. As the pandemic has unfolded, the government's oft-stated commitment to follow the science put him and the UK's chief scientific advisor, Patrick Vallance, at centre stage. In recent months, however, cracks have appeared in the united front between scientists and politicians. Chris has been a consistent presence at government press conferences, but he rarely does interviews. So in this conversation, we wanted to ask him the questions that matter to clinicians, in particular, how the pandemic will impact them over the winter. This interview was recorded on 28th October, just before the announcement of the new imposition of strict lockdowns in France and Germany. These have been exceptional and and really challenging times for all of us, but particularly for you in your role as Chief Medical Advisor to the UK Government, we asked people what they would like us to ask you. And the first question that came up repeatedly was, how are you? So, Chris, how are you? Uh, well, I'm I'm fine, actually. Uh, I, to be honest, I, I'm much more concerned about uh, everybody's doing work on the front line because that is the really hard work. Uh, and as we look forward to what is going to be an extremely difficult winter for the NHS, probably, uh, I, I suspect, unfortunately, unlike any we've seen uh, in uh, certainly recent memory, uh, I am, you know, I am really concerned about uh, the the welfare and, you know, the morale of of the uh, of, of all the medical professionals who are working on this because this is uh, going to be a long and difficult slog. Uh, and I think all of us you know, have huge admiration for what people did in the first wave. It was really extraordinary, and we're going to have to uh, do that again. Uh, and it's going to be hard work. Uh, and I think nobody uh, who, who looks at the numbers can be under any illusions across Europe. We're seeing this uh, and it's certainly going to be the case, I'm afraid, here. I, 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 it's very sobering to hear you say that, Chris, in, in particular. The latest um, ONS figures show that the UK has passed 61,000 deaths um, attributed to COVID-19, with the number of deaths doubling in the past week, although still from a very low absolute base. What do you think doctors need to know about what's likely to happen over the next few months as we head into winter? Well, I mean, I think most of what I'm going to say will be pretty obvious to people, but in a sense, it's probably worth still uh, laying it out. I mean, this is a new virus. It may behave in ways we're not expecting. Um, There is minimal, uh, from an epidemiological point of view, minimal um, uh, evidence of of significant immunity at this stage. So it's got a lot of people, unfortunately, who could become infected over that time. Uh, I think we have to assume that this virus will be benefited by the winter season, just as most other respiratory viruses are, like flu and adenovirus and all the other uh, things that we come across uh, every winter uh, in the NHS. So my expectation is that even if we did exactly the same things as we were doing two or three months ago, rates of infection would be going higher. Uh, And we have to be uh, fairly uh, honest with ourselves that even in a good year, 
a typical flu season, about 7,000 people a year in the UK die of flu, seasonal flu, uh, and in a bad flu year, which often goes quite unremarked, it can be north of 20,000 people dying in, a, in, in the flu season. Uh, this uh, virus is, uh, has got it's significantly more lethal than flu is, uh, slight, slightly depending on age, but there's in every age group apart from maybe children, uh, that's the case. Uh, and it's extremely transmissible, as we've seen with these explosive outbreaks around the world. So I think we have to assume that there will be significant outbreaks. <clears throat> and as a result, there will be significant numbers of people in hospital, some of whom sadly will die. And I think I don't think I'm saying anything that will come as a surprise to anybody uh, in the NHS. And um, we are we having reports and signs that hospitals in the north of England are reaching capacity. Is that is that what you're um, hearing? And is that the case? Um, I don't think we're yet at the stage where uh, there are uh, impossible pressures on the day I'm speaking today. But uh, this is moving so fast that by the time people watch this, that may well have changed. Uh, now, in every uh, winter season, uh, some hospitals come under very substantial pressure and, and some even have to uh, call for mutual support. And that's even, you know, without COVID. Uh, so uh, we, you know, I anticipate and we all anticipate there will be significant pressures this year. And, you know, a point which I've made uh, several times, but I, I'd like to make it again because I think it's really central to how we as a medical profession need to think about this. There are four ways this virus is going to kill people and cause long-term uh, morbidity as well as mortality. There's direct effects of COVID itself. Uh, and as we all know from the people who uh, write about long COVID and other things, uh, there are significant morbidity effects as well as mortality effects. Then there are the effects were we to have an overrunning of the emergency services, so all emergency care stopped. We fortunately avoided that in the first wave, but uh, it, you know it's not a given that will happen if we don't take strong action. Then the third group of, uh, of uh, people who will be harmed by this are people who've got urgent but not emergency care, elective care, which will be delayed further because the health service is under considerable strain. Uh, and then the fourth uh, area, and this is very important as well, and in normal circumstances, public health people would be concentrating in particular on this, is we all know that deprivation leads to serious long-term uh, ill health, uh, health effects, lifelong uh, in some cases, uh, and generational impacts. And the things we have to do to keep the virus under control are having significant social and economic impacts. So they will, that will also have a major impact. So, so you know, we are, we are faced by all of these. And in some ways, things we do to uh, make things better for one of them can have a negative impact on the other. So, for example, uh, freeing up bed space to ensure that we have emergency care puts greater pressure on the elective system. Bringing in more uh, um, societal measures will have a bigger impact on the economic effect whilst it brings down the COVID uh, numbers. So we're in a, this very difficult uh, tension where every direction we go, there are harms. And what we're trying to find is the least harmful combination of things we can do. But this is a this is going to be tricky to manage, and it's the health effects are going to spill well beyond those who get COVID directly. Although obviously there will be significant numbers of those. There have been lots of voices calling for more transparency about how the government balances um, those things you've mentioned, and the advice from its advisors and committees such as Sage 
with the economic and political considerations when deciding on issues like the three-tier system. Do you think more transparency would help health professionals feel confident in the strategy? And if so, how could that greater transparency be achieved? Um, well, I mean, I, I'm in very much in favour of transparency in all the areas I'm in. And I was really pleased that, for example, all the SAGE minutes are published. I think that's exactly as it should be. Uh, and the working papers that go behind that. I can see no disadvantage uh, to open, op openness on that. It is important that people are making very, very difficult uh, political decisions, because ultimately these have to be made, made by political leaders, because these have got enormous societal impacts of, of multiple things they're having to balance. They need the time and space to be able to do that uh, before that ha before you know there's constant commentary on it. But I do think that uh, you know, transparency where, wherever possible uh, is a good thing. And certainly on the science side, we've tried to be very open about what our advice is and how uh, how that's given. Um, and there are many other things that are having to be balanced. And I, I, you know, I think one of the things you know I, I work very closely with my other CMO colleagues, and between us. We are advising uh, an SNP uh, leadership in Scotland, uh, a, a, a Labour leadership and in Wales and many of the local authorities, because a lot of this is local. And of course, a coalition between uh, different parties in Northern Ireland, plus a Conservative led administration here. So this is not you know, every single one of those administrations is struggling with these problems. And we're all trying to try and in a sense share, uh, share knowledge and share information as it comes along. In mid-September, SAGE advised the government to impose uh, a two-week circuit breaker rather than uh, localised targeted restrictions. As I understand it, the circuit breaker wouldn't in itself probably reduce the number of cases. Can you explain, therefore, what would be the point? So I'm, I'm going to be a little bit cautious in the answer to this, only because this has become an issue of party politics. And whenever that happens, I try to be slightly more careful. I try to be incredibly straightforward, except in that situation. But the concept of a circuit breaker is, uh, is um, uh, you buy time. So you wind back the clock from wherever you are by a few weeks. Uh, and that helps to slow down the, the rate of rise. But you still have to do things after you come out of it. It's not something where you do it. And then that is kind of a, a substitute for all the other things uh, that you have to do. Uh, rather, it's a way of trying to slow stuff down. But uh, it comes obviously at a very significant impact in terms of the other societal things that we were talking about before. So it's not a yeah, it's not a panacea. And Sage was not arguing that it was a panacea at all. What they were saying was there is a lot of things we're going to have to consider. Here is one of the tools that needs to be considered. And I think it was slightly overwritten as, you know, you've got to do this or, you know, nothing else will work. It's very much we need to do quite a lot of things. And this is one of the tools to think about. OK, that's really helpful. I mean, it doesn't look like the government in the England is currently going to do what Sage advised, or you know, one of those issues in terms of the circuit break, although Wales has introduced what it calls a fire break. H how do you find you best respond when it doesn't seem like government is, is going to follow what you consider to be important advice? Well, I mean, you know, to go back to, so the, I mean, the, the, the thing to understand about giving advice is firstly that I'm only presenting the health advice. You know, I, I passionately believe in the health side of things and strongly believe that good science leads to good political de political decisions uh, when it comes in. 
but uh, the uh, the economic side of this is also important. And I think, you know, I'm not an economist and others give advice on that side. Uh, all the societal uh, issues are actually also important. Uh, and so the, the political leadership who have to essentially represent the public have to balance all these different elements together. Now, whenever I look at a problem, I generally decide whether I think it is primarily technical, primarily political, or a bit of both. And if it's primarily technical, I will say, look, in my view, uh, there is only one technically correct solution. So, you know, if there was you know, in, in the question, should we, you know, which kind of drugs should we be using for to treat COVID? That's a professional decision. Politics should play no part in that decision. Equally, uh, some of the kind of ways of prioritization between different elements of uh, the response, but also different elements of, uh, for example, health against education, against uh, wider uh, societal aims. Those are political questions. I couldn't give a, a technical contrib contribution to them. And so with, with all of these, there's a political component and a technical component. My job is to help uh, give the best possible technical advice for the bit that is technical and to, and to make clear the uh, consequences of taking actions and not taking actions, because none of the things we got ahead of us. Anyone who thinks that we are not going to do damage, whatever happens, it has not understood the problem we're in. So in every direction we go, we will get some benefits and we will get some significant harms. And it's really about trying to balance those off against one another. There is currently an extremely heated international debate on how countries should manage the pandemic. I wonder where you sit on the spectrum between suppression of the virus at the one end and population immunity at the other. I mean, those perhaps could be characterised as the two extremes. Yeah, I would say, well, I mean, they're, they're not quite the extremes. I'll go on to the, the one of the you know, one of the extremes. But let's start off with the um, population immunity idea or herd immunity, as it's sometimes called in the press, um, which was uh, most sort of codified in a way by the Great Barrington Declaration. Uh, done, I'm sure, by people who uh, have thought about it very uh, deeply and intended to have a helpful part of the debate. My view is that particular approach is wrong scientifically, wrong practically, and in my own opinion, uh, probably wrong ethically as well. But let's start off with the science of it. And I'm going to give a serious answer to this because this is a really, uh, you know, I think it's, this, is a, this is a pretty minority view, uh, but it's been seen as a much wider view. And, I, and it's a perfectly respectable one. I'm not, uh, I'm not in, sense, in any sense uh, disparaging those involved. But it, I, the, the reason it's wrong scientifically is it starts from the assumption that you will get herd immunity and that that is how uh, you control ep epidemics. Actually, for the great majority of the infections I've dealt with in my professional life, and I'm an infectious disease epidemiologist, you never get herd immunity. You don't get it for malaria. You don't get it for HIV. You don't get it for Ebola. You just don't get it ever. And if you try to control that way. Um, secondly, it makes an assumption that immunity will be will uh, will be maintained because you, that ha that's a necessary assumption if you're at least for some period of time. And that is not clear yet with COVID. But we certainly know, for example, that antibodies wane quite fast. So I think scientifically, it's on very, very weak foundations, if I'm honest. Then there's the practical question. Let's say that it was possible to achieve uh, immunity. Uh, it, it works on the assumption you can identify all the people who will come to harm and completely exclude them for the remainder of the time that this virus is in circulation, or at least in high circulation. Now, anyone who's thought about this with this particular virus, which is incredibly easy to transmit, uh, this is not, you know, there are some infections where that might be practical, realises this is extremely impractical as a solution. So even if it was scientifically robust, it would not 
be a practical solution. And the SAGE have looked at this twice and came to the same conclusions both times. And I think that conforms to anybody's thought about it, really, in terms of practicalities. And then the third reason why I think, uh, personally, I, I, I have problems with it is ethically, it would lead to a significant number of people dying who otherwise would not have died of this virus. And it almost certainly would lead to uh, much higher pressure on the NHS and therefore some of the indirect uh, damage. And uh, the uh, Director General of the World Health Organization said he was concerned about the ethics of it. I, I share those concerns. But my principal concerns are uh, are ones of, uh, of science and of practicality. I think that um, there is another extreme, which is the other end, is people saying, well, why can't we just eradicate this virus? Uh, that's actually the thing that goes beyond suppression. Suppression is trying to get it down to as low as possible. Absolutely, we should be trying to do that. But to actually eradicate it or eliminate it completely, I think that's also impractical for a variety of reasons I could go into. But there is a reason why we have to date only uh, managed to eradicate one human disease and two or three others just on the edge. But they've been just on the edge for a long time. Uh, and for those who got incredibly good countermeasures, so the only one we've managed to eradicate is smallpox. So it's very, very difficult to do. And if people are interested, I did a whole 90 minute Gresham lecture on it, which is online. And they can, you know, that, that can be the answer to that side of why this is tricky to do at the other extreme of this. So therefore, what we've got to do is get this virus down as low as is practical uh, at any point in time using the tools we've got and 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 expect that um, the uh, that we will get medical countermeasures for this. It might come in the form of vaccines. Uh, it might come in the form of drugs, as happened with HIV, for example. We don't have an HIV vaccine, but we've got very good control in the UK on that. Uh, there are other possible technical solutions. So, you know, I think we don't shouldn't see that we will be in the current state for an indefinite period. I have an absolute belief in the ability of science to uh, get us out of this hole, but it is going to take a while before we get to that point. From the start of this, Chris, you were very clear that we would need to strike a difficult balance between public health measures to control the virus and the effect these would have on the economy and therefore on people's health. And the Financial Times data recently published shows that those countries that have done worse in terms of COVID death have also done worse economically, with the UK scoring badly on both of those counts. This suggests that it's a false dichotomy to talk about health versus wealth and that we have to control the virus in order to restore our economy. Is that is that how you see things? That is absolutely how I see things. Yeah. Very good. <laughs> nice succinct answer there. Um, what can you say to local public health professionals who feel they have been left out of the approach um, in terms of track and trace and other public health measures and feel it would be better with their involvement? Um, I So I, I have the um, good fortune to work you know, quite closely with the directors of public health. Uh, and, uh, you know, they have done an absolutely extraordinary job. And I think anybody who's not seen their, their work firsthand and the, the, the public health people and local authorities who work with them, uh, you know, it, it is very inspiring to see. And, you know, when I go to places like Hull or, or Blackwood or so on, you see remarkable public health leaders doing the day job of all the other areas of public health, plus on top of this, uh, all the activity on in terms of COVID. Uh, and I actually have a lot of sympathy with the view that a, particularly in this second wave, which is much less of a national picture and where there's quite a lot more tools we have at our disposal, uh, the idea that actually there should be local leadership and local ownership of many of the decisions, 
I'm very uh, strongly uh, in, in favour of. Uh, and, um, you know, we're very fortunate to have such good directors of public health. There's a long tradition of that in the UK. Uh, and I think trusting them to make good local judgments is a very sensible. The first wave was a slightly different situation because firstly, it was basically the whole of the UK went through the wave almost the same way. London was more than anywhere else, but it was very, very similar across the country. And we were standing up from incredibly standing start with very, very few tools. But as we go through this second wave, much more variegated picture, which is actually much more typical of what other countries in Europe, for example, had in the first wave. Uh, I think that makes the argument for uh, local leadership and local decisions where possible. You can't do it across the board because you know, we are in a slightly cleft stick on this, that, uh, that, that we, the health system, will be criticised for having a very confusing picture if we do things too differently uh, and for being too monoculture if we do things all the same. And there is a happy medium. Uh, won't stop us being criticised, but you know we collectively, professionally have to make professional judgments. But there is a balance between having some degree of a national approach and some degree of local. And I think you know, inevitably in the second wave, the, the ratios are slightly different and should be slightly different. Which leads me on to, I mean, it's a sort of similar point in a way, but it does seem to to many of the people who who contribute to the BMJ that the, the UK government has preferred a more centralised approach with use of commercial companies to deliver many of the measures. Do you, based on what you've just said, do you envisage a larger role for the public sector and local public health teams during the second wave? That seems to be what you're saying. Uh, I don't think I was saying anything about public sector versus private sector, which is a debate which I consider that's in the political delivery end rather than the public health end. Mine was more to do with local authorities, local directors of public health, uh, and their considerable contribution compared to the national. And it's basically about using both. There's, you know, they don't have the degree of specialisation, they don't have the uh, resources that you have centrally, but they do have local knowledge, they have local uh, experience, they understand what's ha happening locally. That was the that was the comparison I was trying to make. Okay, thank you. Um, as I understand it, Chris, you see your role and, and what you've said seems to confirm this as providing the scientific advice and, and, and interpreting that for government, um, and then it being up to them to make what are essentially political decisions. Uh, I wondered about your sense of a role in implementation. If I've understood correctly, you, you don't see that you have a role in implementation. Well, well, well I mean, I I have uh, an advisory role. I have a leadership role of the public health system. I have a leadership role of the medical profession in government. I run the National Institute for Health Research. Uh, I've got a lot of roles. Uh, you may be wishing even more on me, no. uh, but, but uh, and I still work as a jobbing doctor on the wards. So, uh, which I consider is very important, actually, as part of uh, you know my own sense of self. I see myself as a as a, as a basically clinician uh, first and foremost. So, uh, you know, I, I, there's a certain point where I would say, uh, you know, I'll stop doing the job properly if I take on yet more things. So, I hope you'll allow me that that's enough enough for one for one person at this point it's in time. It certainly sounds more than enough. Um, and I'd like to come back to the bit about clinical work because I hadn't understood that. So I, I might pick that up. But just to just to follow on from the, the main part of my question. So I, I had always understood that the CMO was the head of public health in the UK. But you will understand that people are rather confused about where that um, oversight or leadership of, of public health really sits with, with what's happened with Public Health England and new mm -hmm. biosecurity centres. And I wondered if you could just help readers understand, um, you know, you're the chief medical officer, people see you as the head of public health in the UK. Is that is that right? Um, and how, how do those various bits fit together? Uh, well, I think 
one of the things that I felt quite quite uh, strongly when I came into this role is not just for public health, but for the medical profession as a whole, we ought to be having a collective leadership. Uh, and I'm definitely part of that collective leadership. But there are, you know, the, the Royal Colleges, and in the case of public health, obviously the Faculty of Public Health. Uh, there are um, the uh, all the various NHS organisations in NHS England. There are the devolved, devolved uh, nations which have complete control over health decisions pretty well. Uh, so Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland. Uh, and there are the local authorities which have very significant influence, which we were talking about before. Now, um, it, it, it is neither right nor sensible that anybody says, well, I'm the person who just leads the whole thing. Thank you very much. I see this as a collective leadership, but the CMO role is and uh, always has been a senior leader within that system, but as part of a collective leadership. And I think particularly going through this crisis at the moment, it's been really important that the leaders, you know, I talk very you know, regularly to the presidents of the Royal Colleges, to the directors of public health, to the leaders of the NHS England and all the PHE people, it is important we see ourselves as a collective leadership. And I would actually see uh, the editors of the major journals actually as part of that collective leadership of the profession. It doesn't mean you have to be bought into other people's decisions, but you help influence how this goes. And that, I think that is important. We see ourselves as a profession with a collective leadership of which I am one and many people who might be listening or reading this uh, are also leaders. As a civil servant, um you're accountable to the government, but you also, I, I'm sure, feel that you have to guard your own credibility because that's where your authority comes from amongst your colleagues and, and, and the wider world. How do you find that you personally balance those sometimes competing imperatives? Um, I have no responsibility, and the, the, the CMO role is different from most civil service roles in that I'm independent whilst being government and statutorily independent uh, whilst being government. Um, and so I feel no, I'm not bound by this is what the government talking points of the day are. And I have to say what the government's view is. I give my own view straight. And I hope people, when they see me saying that, realise I give my own view and I don't I don't feel constrained uh, by things. Um, where it is important, where being a civil servant matters, is there is an absolute um, statutory requirement, rightly, for impartiality and for staying out of party politics. So the one thing which I do do is where I think is something is a political issue, and I make I consider I'm the person to make the judgment about that, it's a professional judgment of mine, I will decide I'm not going to engage in something publicly which I think has entered the party political domain, because that would be quite wrong. Either to uh, attack the government or to support the government or to attack the opposition or whatever it is, that would be inappropriate. So I'm very careful that there are certain things that I stay out of because I consider that they are rightly and properly the realm of party politics. But, you know, I have no problem. And no one has ever said to me, gosh, you went a bit far there or I want you to say this. And if you don't, you know, there's going to be trouble. They've always accepted that this role is an independent role and it, it ceases to have use if people like me are having to jib, you know, cut, cut our jibs to, to, just to suit the situation. It would really no longer be helpful to the government. So, you know, that, that's the way it works. And that's the way it has always worked. And that's the way, it, in my view, always should work. There was that moment, Chris, when uh, the Dominic Cummings thing emerged and, and you were asked at, at the press conference what your views were and you declined to comment. And one felt that Boris Johnson rather sort of quickly skipped in to stop perhaps you and Patrick commenting. I mean, was that one of those occasions where you would, didn't, you know, you didn't feel that was appropriate 
Um, people might have felt that was you being asked not to say something. No. Uh, so, I mean, firstly, it was at that particular moment, I did think it was a party political issue at that particular point in time. Uh, but secondly, I have been very, very careful across the board never to comment on individual people. I don't think that's appropriate for this kind of role. Okay. The UK lacks an independent organisation like the Robert Koch Institute in Germany, uh, which I gather provides information, data and analysis for the public. Do you think this is something we should be aiming to establish in the UK? Well, I mean, so I, I uh, talk inevitably from time to time to uh, the president of the Robert Koch Institute, which is an outstanding uh, institute. Um, I don't, in the case of this the kind of pandemic, I don't think it makes much difference where the advice is situated, if I'm honest. I think it is very important that public health advice is seen to be free of political interference. Uh, we, we can agonise rather a lot about exactly what form that should take. Uh, and people can get a bit theological about this. I can actually, I, I've been in the system long enough to remember that some of those who uh, were very uh, exercised about the fact that PHE was no longer to be PHE, were very exercised about PHE being created in the first place and said it was disgraceful that it had been uh, being created out of otherwise independent organisations and so on. There are pros and cons to every organisational structure. The general principle should be, as with all medical advice, this is true for clinicians as well, you should give the advice you give professionally independently and without any sense that you're 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 cutting the advice according to what the person who you're talking to wants to hear you know any doctor who does not abide by that general principle is not doing them their patients or the wider public if they're in public health any favors at all so independence is in my view a state of mind uh, and a tradition we should be firmly adhered to uh, organizational structures strike me as as less uh, as less important at the beginning of the pandemic, um, the politicians made it clear that they would follow the science and, and they and you and Patrick Balance, the government's chief scientific officer, presented a very united front. Uh, it perhaps is inevitable as, as time moves on and things shift that the unity has become strained um, more. And you've said, for example, that the three tier system announced last week or a few weeks ago by Boris Johnson won't be enough. And you've also SAGE has called for a two-week circuit breaker, which at the moment the, the government in England hasn't adopted. Um, do, is that inevitable? Does it worry you? Do you think um, this lack of unity or, or reduction in unity will damage public trust? Well, I mean, just to clarify on the first uh, example, which uh, was me saying exactly what I thought, but what I thought was, mis mis was partially reported and it gave a misleading impression. What I said was, if an area of the country has got such a high level of transmission already and is rising that it needs to go into the tier three areas. The very base case of tier three would probably not be sufficient on its own to allow that area to turn the, corner, the, the curve down. But within tier three, there are multiple options on top of that, which will need to be added to. There will be some degree of local discretion as to what the right ones are. But, but if you just think if you've got to tier three and you think you can just do the base case, that will be insufficient. That's what I said. What is reported out was, was I was saying tier three was no good. That wasn't what I said. So and I think and this is one of the problems I have is that quite often I give a very precise answer and people cut out the bit that they want to hear and report just narrowly that. And it's just as it's just like if you're talking to a patient 
and you're giving a long talk about all the various things that are pros and cons of a treatment, and they choose to only hear one bit of it, and that's where they report back. You know, that's exactly what you what it feels like to me as, a, as sometimes as a medical practitioner in the system. Uh, you know, the, the, what what I said I hope was reasonably clear, and I'm, I would invite people to go back and listen to my words, which were carefully chosen and were, uh, I, in my view, uh, pretty accurate and conform with what I've just said. And talking of being a medical practitioner, Chris, people will be surprised, as I was, I'm sorry I didn't realise this, that you are still practising clinically. Tell us why that is and how that feels at this time. Uh, well, I mean, it, it, it is because I'm, um, you know, I, I would self-identify as a doctor. That's my kind of, you know, lots some people self-identify as, you know, scientists or whatever it might be. I self-identify primarily as a doctor. So for me, it matters a lot. It also, uh, I think, is helpful to get a feel for, you know, talking to uh, colleagues uh, all the way through the system, doctors, others, nurses, all the uh, other professionals. It gives you a feel, it grounds you uh, in, in how the system is. So there's a, there's a, there's a win, I think, for, for the wider role. Um, this is the first job I've done where I haven't actually done weekly clinics and done on calls on a rotor for acute medicine. So I'm now just because I didn't feel I could stay up to date with uh, all the acute medical um, uh, guidelines. I've, I've kind of restricted it to infectious diseases, which is my own uh, specialist area. But I hugely benefited from doing it all the way through. I've been working in the time I've been working in government, uh, which is uh, now uh, around about a decade. I've been a clinician throughout that time. Uh, I have to do it at times when um, Parliament's not sitting. So that means I have to do it in holiday times. Uh, but that generally is reasonably popular with my colleagues. So that's not the end of the world. Uh, but I mean, I really, you know, I enjoy it as well as thinking it's something I should do. So, uh, I, you know, I consider it a privilege. Uh, the key thing is, of course, to, is to realise, is there a point when actually uh, the registrars are all coughing a bit and thinking, this guy should stop. But I don't think I've reached it yet. If if I do, I very much hope that my colleagues will tell me well in advance of that. Uh, but I, I don't think that's the current situation. And it is, you know, it is a real privilege to be a doctor. And I think you know, anyone who is a clinician doesn't realise quite how lucky they are till they try and do something else. It's it's a great profession. How, in your view, Chris, will the pandemic end? I think that the pandemic. Uh, what what's going to happen? I don't think COVID is going to disappear. I, I think COVID-19, I don't think that's a likely uh, scenario out. Um, we will get medical countermeasures, drugs, vaccines or other things, uh, and um, they will help us uh, de-risk it significantly. But I think we will have COVID circulating and it'll be, it may become like seasonal flu. It may become like seasonal adenovirus. It might become something which is rather less seasonal. A variety of ways it could play out. But I think what it'll do is, is its impact on society, its impact on mortality and its existential threat to medical practice uh, in the wider sense, the fact it's stopping us doing all the other elements of, of health, that will fade uh, as we get on top of it with the medical countermeasures. Uh, and so I think what, what you will see is rather than on, you know, we wake up on a Tuesday and suddenly everyone's about to be vaccinated and it just disappears, what will happen is it'll become much less risky over time because of the things that the medical profession and some accumulation of immunity, but really I, I want to emphasise, I think that's much less important uh, in this. Um, but the medical countermeasures will make this a manageable problem, just as 
HIV is now a manageable problem. When I was a doc in Southern Africa, you know, a third of people or 30 percent of people my age had it and it was 100 percent mortality. Uh, you know, and now HIV is still a very, very serious threat. It'll be a serious threat for the rest of my, my, my lifetime, but it is a much, much lesser threat than it was. So, uh, you know, I'm not equating HIV and COVID as diseases. They are very, very different, but they are two infectious diseases which have had a massive impact on society, but where medical science and medical practice will reduce the risk sufficiently that the impact on society will be much smaller without being able to say it'll be completely gone. Because I don't think completely gone is a realistic goal for this or most other infections. And your sense of the likelihood of a vaccine in the next year? Uh, well, I mean, I think the the evidence is that people can get some degree of immunity, at least for a while. So that's the first, that's a good starting point. Because if you can't get immunity to infection, it's pretty unlikely you're going to get a vaccine to it. That's what we found in other uh, diseases. Uh, and there is the biggest effort to get vaccines that's ever been seen running in parallel. Lots of different types of vaccine all being tried at the same time. I think there is a reasonably good chance that we will get a vaccine in the next year. But I think nobody should assume that and nobody should put a date on it. Uh, I think we know from science it is enormously powerful but you never know which one is definitely going to uh, cross the finishing line and cross the finishing line first. Obviously, we would all hope for the first two or, two or three vaccines that are leading currently the trials in phase three trials to, to work. And if every single one of the vaccines worked, that would be an outstanding result. But uh, let's see. And finally, Chris, what do you think we've learned from this pandemic that we will need to apply in the next one? Um, I think that what this demonstrates, and unfortunately we always say this at the end of every pandemic or major epidemic, is the need to get proper diagnostic uh, capacity, proper public health systems, properly rooted locally, because that's what actually stands you in good stead when you have an emergency. And that's very easy to say during an emergency and immediately afterwards everyone will say it. And then the enthusiasm gradually wanes and then you get to a situation and then the next wave hits. And I think, I, I, you know, but this, this, this lesson you could have rewritten after several previous pandemics. Uh, and so I don't think I'm saying anything in the slightest bit original. Chris Whitty, thank you very much indeed for talking to us. A pleasure. You've been listening to Professor Chris Whitty, England's Chief Medical Officer and Chief Medical Advisor to the UK Government. As the COVID-19 pandemic picks up pace across the world, we'll be focusing on what this means for public health and clinical practice. You can find all of the BMJ's coverage of the pandemic at bmj.com forward slash coronavirus. I'll be back next week with more on the COVID-19 second wave so subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Until then, stay safe and thank you for listening.